Welcome everyone to another exciting edition of the Magic Sandwich Show. And you'll see that we have our usual suspects, namely Thunderfoot, Baron <laughs> Ra and Concordance. But we also have someone else uh, who is our first caller. I'm going to save all the introductions that I would normally give at this stage until later because uh, Daniela only has about 10 minutes um, spare uh, to give us. So we're going to go straight to her and then we'll come back and talk to the others. Daniela, are you with us? Yes. Can everyone hear me? We can indeed. Tell us your story. Okay. <laughs> okay. Um, I used to make videos on YouTube. Um, I was made And now I'm a born again Christian and I'm really happy and I wanted to share that with everyone that knows me from YouTube. Um, talk us, talk us through I, how it, talk us through how it all happened then. Um, basically, um, I started a secular student alliance in my my university, and um, when I did that, I started to talk to the people from the Christian group that was in my campus. Um, they invited me for a Bible study and we studied the Gospel of John and I prayed and God spoke to me and I had a real experience with the Holy Spirit and I just couldn't uh, be an atheist anymore. It was like I would lie to myself if I continued to be an atheist, even if my reason told me that wasn't the right move, but like... I, I was just going to ask, what, what, what did the voice say to you? <laughs> it wasn't like a voice. Um, it was more like um, talking to your heart, and to, you know... <laughs> okay, I have, a, I have a question myself. So you talked to the Secular Student Alliance, they showed you the Bible... And rather than show everything that was wrong with the Bible, you decided to pray, which right away I have some huge questions about that. Why would you assume the existence of a thing that the Bible you're reading had already disproved? I'm, I'm already lost there. And why would you pray to something that you did not yet believe in? I mean, before I talk to anything, I'm going to believe that it's there. And when I was a neo-pagan, I did these kinds of meditations where you would assume that the thing is there and that you're going to see it. And, of course, gargoyles or whatever else you, it is that you want to believe in will manifest when you meditate under those circumstances. So I, I'm, a, I'm a little stunned at how you've managed to, to fool yourself this way. Okay. Um, and then lots of questions. But um, let me try... Explain. I created the secular student in my university. I was all about trying to, you know, <laughs> make people see that the Bible is just a book and, and all that stuff. I know, I know all the arguments against the Bible. I read a really good book um, that showed some um, good evidence for the Bible. That was one thing. So it wasn't a completely um, blind faith 
okay, so I had some uh, information that made me feel okay about um, being Christian. So I didn't like deny my reason for that. I wouldn't go into this really deep discussion about uh, the Bible itself because real is not my uh, it's, it's not something I know a lot about to argue. I'm, I'm not going to do that. Uh, but the evidence that people showed me was good. So I decided to pray as a test, you know. So um, I didn't pray uh, because I wanted to believe in that, but I prayed because Everyone told me that God would never, um, uh, like, uh, if, if a person prays with their heart and their mind, and yeah. they really want to find truth. Yeah, then God it becomes what I, what I just said. When you pray with your heart and with your mind, regardless which God it is or which religion it is, you will always be able to manifest that spiritual entity because you are conjuring it in within yourself. So I'm not interested in that part. I know how that part plays. Once you make the assumption to the point that you're ready to play, you've prayed. You've already bought the, the, the story. What was the evidence that somebody gave you that was, in you, as you put it, really good? Because I'm still convinced that there is not any evidence, good or bad. Okay. Um, I would say that the evidence that I found was just... Um, okay, let me put it this way. I think that if we are going to use reason and evidence, we can come to be agnostic, okay, and be like, um, okay, we can prove there is no God and that the Bible is bullshit, but, like, it's not a good way to go either, okay? But Let me clarify. I want to make sure I understand what you're saying. You're saying yeah. somebody gave you really good evidence, and then when I asked you for what that evidence is, you said that we shouldn't use evidence, are you about to tell me now that they, in fact, did not give you evidence? No. Uh, okay. I what was the that, evidence, please? Yeah, I said that I, I don't feel comfortable to discuss this because um, that's a not, curious thing. Because everybody yeah. that tells me that they were a former atheist turned Christian, they always say that the evidence was compelling, whatever the evidence is. And every time I've ever asked what this evidence is, it always turns out to be, well, that's a subjective thing. I'd be happy to discuss it in a private conversation, but I can't divulge it openly. And evidence, by definition, is something that you could divulge openly. Okay. Um, what, I, what I mean, I guess, is that, like, like when I was an atheist, I would support the that evolution is right, but I wouldn't sit and discuss the details about evolution because it's not something I know a lot about. So that's, that's basically what I'm saying. I'm not going to discuss about the uh, Bible evidence because this is something that I'm not... Uh, uh, I don't... I, I haven't studied that a lot yet, and I, I will. I, I, I plan to, but... Uh, what I really just want to tell you guys, really, uh, I, don't, I know we are 
your work, you know, I I have seen your videos, I know DPR, I know Thunderfoot, I know Concordancy, I know you all, and I know that you guys are really smart, and, like, I'm not here to try to, <laughs> I, I don't think I have any real tools to argue with you about reason or science uh, did, I ask you, did I ask you to argue with me? I didn't. I did not ask you to argue Sorry. with me. I asked you to tell me what was the evidence. See, here's the thing. When I come out of a religious belief, and I, you know, if anybody comes out of a religious belief, they, they list the evidence that compelled them. They can tell, this, they can tell like, all the examples and what that means and how they understood it and how that changed their mind. But when somebody goes from atheist to Christian, so far, I've never gotten the example. Nobody's ever told me what was the thing that changed their mind. And it always turns into some subjective thing where they kind of already drank the Kool-Aid before they made the decision. So I'm interested. If I were moving out of Christianity and into atheism, damn skippy, I would be able to give you the compelling reason to change your mind along with mine. So... I'm expecting that the same rules would apply going the other way, but it doesn't seem that they do. Okay, um, because I, I, am, um, I realized that the reason why I decided to go to Christianity wasn't um, because of reason. So, yes, okay, so it, it wasn't is. evidence. You said that it was evidence that changed your mind. It turned out not to be. No, no, okay, so uh, we'll just we'll, we'll amend your original statement. Well, uh, like I said, the evidence would only allow me to go from atheist to agnostic. It would only be like, it's not what evidence? direct. What, what <laughs> evidence could possibly take you from atheist to agnostic? And let's you're using the wrong definition for agnostic, but I know what you mean, so we'll just go with that. I guess that you mean that agnostic is somebody who is somewhere between being convinced there is a God and not being convinced that there is a God. There actually isn't an in-between there. So, yeah, I, I, I use the word agnostic as someone who uh, does not judge doesn't have a on Okay, matter. well, see, that's most of us. So what evidence would take us from where we already are to where we already are to be agnostic that's atheists, to be that's agnostic atheists? Huh? That's the point. That's the point. What, what I'm trying to tell you is that uh, we can't decide this through uh, reason and evidence because the okay. evidence that we all have only shows us that we cannot have an answer. Wait, wait, no, so no. The evidence that we have, the evidence that we have shows us that we can and do have an answer. The evidence doesn't show us we don't have an answer. Quite the opposite. Now, when you do not base your decisions on reason, which you just said you don't base your decisions on reason, then you're not going to come to that conclusion. My decisions are all based on reason. I don't decide what to believe the evidence decides what I will believe. It's not my choice. You apparently made a choice independent of evidence. Because as you said, you're not relying on reason. And so far, every conversion of Christianity I have ever heard has always boiled down to it's not based on reason. It's based on an assumption made of emotion. 
I was hoping that maybe, since because of your prior involvement, you would be aware of this and you would be able to give a satisfactory answer. Um, I, okay, uh, I think that we can make decisions that are not based on reason, but are not irrational. Like, it, it just... Uh, I'm sorry, the def- again, we're having a problem with definitions. Rational means that your decisions are based on reason. But maybe I'm using the wrong definition. Okay, okay. Um, think about if you, if you, are, you are at home and you need to eat. Um, and you have to make a decision... Okay, you have two uh, places you can go out to to eat, and they have the same distance. Okay, there you have to make a decision. Which uh, place are you going to eat? They're both the same distance. You have like you can choose any of those, and it wouldn't be based on reason, but it wouldn't be a irrational choice. The irrational no. choice would be to come and die of hunger. But you can have aesthetics and aesthetics still be based on reason. And you can also decide whether you whether you feel chemically aligned with curry on this particular day or not. And that'll help your decision, too. It's it's always going to be evidence based. It's always going to be rational, at least from my perspective. I know there's some people in the in the chat room that doubt that for some strange reason. But um, that's not the case. All my decisions are based on reason. Can I can you give me. Any reason, any evidence, any excuse at all for what would imply to me that the universe is not the way I understand it to be and was actually conjured by an incantation spell uttered by a Bronze Age genie, which is apparently what the Christians believe in. See, I'm, I'm, I'm having I'm having some trouble looking at the at these uber galactic scale of things and trying to imagine that it was conjured by a god. Why do you think that this um, god from this Bronze Age religion has suddenly taken an interest in you? Um, I really believe that God has a really deep and meaningful uh, plans for my life and to use my testimony as something that will change people because that has happened already here and well Danny if, uh, I, if I may this is what I find somewhat curious because you are yeah. under the impression that your God wants you to go around and spread the message and give your testimony yeah. but when you were asked specifically what evidence had been provided uh, to you in order to for you to reach this uh, conclusion um, you won't tell us now if it's your mission to convert us all which is, as I understand it is why won't you tell us what this evidence is See, that, that's the thing. I, I'm not supposed to convert anyone. That's the job of the Holy well, Spirit. Well, you said I'm that just, your, your mission, God's mission for you was to go around and use your testimony. How yes, can you do that with, without discussing with us what the evidence? I, I tell people about my history, my, about my testimony, and that is one of the elements that will help people to make the decision to be Jesus. 
But it's well, it not, won't, will it? Because at the moment, what you're saying is to, sounds to us utterly vacuous and hollow and is, is totally unpersuasive. And without evidence, none of us okay. are going to be can, persuaded. Okay, can, can we... Um, oh, I, I understand that you are probably frustrated. I would be too if I were in your place because I used to hate Christians that didn't know how to explain why they believe in what it is. So um, what I really wanted to do today was just tell people about my conversion because some people didn't know. Um, but can we do this? Um, you can like send questions and I will debate with you another time when I have more time to talk because I really I have to go now. And I will okay, well, feel free to feel free to come back on a future show and I'll include um if you send me a message where you would like people to message you if they want to talk to you about it, I'll include that in the description of these videos when they are posted on YouTube. How's that? Yes. Yes, because then I can present you some of the evidence that I saw because I Wait, wait, we 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 got evidence again? We will have evidence next week. How about that? Okay, so you have not so far seen evidence, but you will in the future present evidence. And that you no, used I... evidence, you, somebody showed you evidence that changed your mind, but you don't use evidence because you don't base your decisions on reason. Do you understand why I'm confused? Because you said we shouldn't use evidence, but you had evidence, but you're not going to tell us what the evidence is. Um, look, uh, there is evidence. I just am not uh, able to talk about it now because I don't have enough time. And okay, would you, like to, would you like to come back on a future show and um, talk us through yes. the evidences? Yes. You're more than welcome. Uh, we obviously are on every two weeks at the same time. Uh, will you be able to join us next uh, on the next show? Yes, I, I would love to do that. Okay, if, we'll do that. People find it too boring, but... No, it's okay. Uh, I think it'll be very interesting. I know you've got to get off to church, so I will let you go. But thank you very much indeed for uh, sharing your um, testimony with us. And as I say, hopefully we will see her again in two weeks' time on our next show. She did indicate to me, I wasn't being rude there, she did indicate that she only had 10 minutes uh, before she had to go to church, and she actually gave us 18 minutes. Um, so hopefully okay. she will have more time on the next occasion. So let's move on. We'll, we will uh, start with Thunder, who I know has an announcement that he wishes to make, and then we'll move on to other topics as well. Thunder. So, as many of you may know, the YouTube uh, community, especially on the secular scientific front, has been suffering from what I would call attrition. Um, and the number of people making videos is in a bit of a decline. And um, just looking uh, around, um, I could... When was the last time you made a video, Aaron? I've been a little occupied of late. DPR, when was the last time you made a video? I think it was... Uh, it was probably September. And Concordance? Thursday of uh, this week. Really? I missed yeah. that. Oh, man. <laughs> I'm sorry. In which case, I'm uh, really sorry. I, you have been productive and breaker. I missed it. Um, yeah, breaking the run. Okay. But anyway, what we want to do is we want to encourage people to actually 
become active and make videos, uh, especially people who are good at it. Um, and so I'm basically use all the donations that I got last year to run a, as prize money for a competition this year. The competition is going to be broken into three provisional segments. Um, each one uh, will have a first prize, a second prize, and a third prize, two third prizes of $1,500 and $250 respectively. So for the first quarter of this year, there'll be one competition run. For the second, third, one competition run. And for the third quarter, one competition run. The judges that I've got lined up so far is Eugenie Scottwell from the National Centre for Science and Education will run the first quarter. The Richard Dawkins Foundation, uh, run by Elizabeth, or the primary judge will be Elizabeth Cornwell from the... Uh, Richard Dawkins Foundation for the second, and for the third one, it'll be the Thinking Atheist. Um, so, each one of those uh, competitions will have a theme to it, um, and those will be decided by the judges. Um, so, so I, I've appointed the three uh, primary judges. They will in turn decide uh, the. They will be joined by two other judges. Um, and between them, they will actually make up the rules for uh, what will determine the, who wins. Um, and then after the first three quarters, uh, there will be 12 winners in total, and they will get to compete in an end-of-year shootout. And the end criterion for entering the competition is that you must make at least two videos over that quarter they have to be new videos. They have to be at least five minutes in length. Oh, sorry, uh, maximum of five minutes in length um, and submitted before the deadline. Judges will announce what the, the criterion of the judging will be. Um, and, yeah, hopefully that will actually stimulate some, some new people to actually join the video-making community to actually get some good quality media out there. And, and I think um, you're missing one of the really big pluses for this, Thunder, which is Eugenie Scott will watch your video. I mean, that's pretty awesome. Uh, not only that, but you're the potential for winning a competition for which Eugenie Scott is the judge. Which is, well, come on, that, that that's bragging rights. And, and then, of course, the promotional value of, of maybe a new video maker. And on top of that, yeah, uh, any any winner who wants it um, gets to take a sort of lap of honour, if you like, on, on my channel. So they can put their, their winning video up there, and hopefully that will breed some more life in into our community. So in total, um, it's uh, about $10,000. Uh, but that's actually broken into essentially four four competitions. Um, first prize, will, like I said, it's a thousand dollars. Second prize, five hundred, and then there'll be two third prizes of two hundred and fifty dollars each. I think also you wanted to invite people to come up with a suggestion for the name. Yeah, I've yet to come up with a decent, catchy name for this. So if someone can actually think of a, a decent, catchy name for this video contest, that would be that would be great. So if you've got good suggestions, put them into the chat, because I'm watching the chat now. Uh, you can also, we'll put up a post on our website, the Magic 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 Sandwich, 
the www.magicsandwichshow.com uh, and you can also leave it there or send um, the ideas or suggestions to um, Thunderfoot directly on his YouTube channel. You heard a voice concordance? That's the first step. <laughs> I'm converted. I'm converted anyway. I'm, I'm renouncing atheism. Yes, do you want to tell us why? What argument it was that converted you? Oh, it's just, it's brilliant. I mean, you can't, you can't stand up under its withering uh, brilliance. I'll have to find the link and post it in one minute. Uh, well, whilst you're doing that, whilst you're argument. finding that video, um, and in fact, we might even have the technology to send it to Ben to be played, um, if, if uh, Ben is uh, agreeable to that. But whilst we're sorting that out, let me um, make reference to the link that is above the chat. Uh, it's a link to a Facebook page, uh, and as you see, it's called Free Ben Baz. Uh, ben Baz is someone who lives in Kuwait and uh, until uh, early January of this year had a, an active uh, website and blog site where he posted his beliefs, which were atheistic beliefs. However, as a result of that, he has been arrested. He is currently in prison and is due to face trial uh, towards the end of February. What I would invite everyone do, to do, if they're willing and minded to do so, is to visit that uh, Facebook page. You'll have all the details that are relevant there. Uh, and please support the campaign that has been launched, um, as you'll see under the name Free uh, Ben Baz. Um, I think that it is a disgraceful outrage that even in the 21st century, people can be arrested locked up and prosecuted simply for their harmless, peaceful beliefs. It is a disgrace. If you happen, as many people and more and more people seem to be doing these days, um, downloading the audio file from iTunes or the website, um, the links will be included on the web page. So, um, as I say, it's www.magicsandwichshow.com uh, if you would like to support, if you're listening on audio and would like to support, please go to that um, website. It'll be under the announcements pages, uh, or even on the front page. Uh, and please do what you can to help the campaign free Ben Baz. I've got another announcement, but I'm going to save that uh, a little bit later um, because I think concordance. Are you ready to tell us this persuasive argument that you have heard? Well, no, it's all visual. You have to watch the video. Now I have put the link here. If you guys could post it into the chat or if we can find a way to uh, stream that. This is the argument. Everything which begins to exist has a cause. The universe began to exist, therefore the universe has a cause. Now what do we know about this cause? Well, because it created space and time, it must be spaceless and eternal. Because it is eternal, it must be unchanging. Why is this? Well, you cannot have an infinite number of events. It must be immaterial because matter is constantly changing at the atomic level. It must be unimaginably powerful in order to create this vast universe. And finally, it must be personal. Now why must it be personal? Well, an eternal cause cannot create a non-eternal effect without the intervention of a personal mind. So here we have a spaceless, eternal, immaterial, unchanging, unimaginably powerful, personal creator of the universe. God.
Yeah, well, I mean, the, the, the obvious problem there is um, you can rephrase the Kalam cosmological argument to prove that God doesn't exist or that the universe doesn't need a creator. So uh, it, it's all about the subtle wording um, that everything that exists um, uh, needs... Um, oh, hang on, give, give me a second... Everything that exists... Uh, you see has... how Thunderfoot's logic is wilting under the weight of this fa- ma- magnificent argument. He can't think straight anymore. Yes. Um, Check everything, me, atheist. Every, uh, here we go. Everything that exists uh, began to exist. Um, God, uh, by definition, never began to exist. Therefore, God does not exist. I think that's right. Uh, everything begins to exist, ah, and it needs a slight changing. Everything that it begins to exist, uh, sorry, everything that exists began to exist. Um, therefore, nothing that doesn't begin to exist exists. Therefore, God does not exist. I think that's it. Uh, you, you've got to be a little like more subtle with the wording, but. Yeah, I thought it was more like this. I mean, since we have uh, what I've often brought up about the Cartesian coordinate system and time being an asymptote where uh, one second equals infinity when t equals zero, then we know that even at the point of the Big Bang, we know that the beginning is itself infinite. So even though it is a beginning, it is also infinite, so it never actually began to exist. Meanwhile, God is an adaptation of a Bronze Age deity called Yahweh. We know exactly how he began to exist. He was one of the 70 children of El and was taken from all these uh, Sumerian religions and was concocted and then exaggerated to infinite extremes. So there's, again, proof that the universe is eternal and God does not exist. Well, I have only one response to that as, as a newly converted Christian, and that is, nuh-uh. <laughs> there, you've got, two, you've got devast- two, haven't you, concordance, if I may? Um, your second one is that the very rules that you've just uh, used to argue that the universe had a cause, um, you also have to say uh, don't apply to your God for reasons which no, you because I mean, I mean obviously, yeah, he's he's eternal. I mean that's that's sort of built into it. Um, because well, of I course mean, he's the, eternal, and, and this is he didn't sorry, have to finish. start to exist, right? So, so because he didn't have to start to exist, he can make things start to exist. So he's eternal. He he he's he's outside of time, which only exists as a, a factor of space. But he's still outside of that, so we don't have to worry about that. That's the other thing that makes me laugh about that little video is it says that God is unchanging, and anything that never changes can actually do something, right? Because that would involve changing. Okay. <laughs> so the unchanging being can never create anything because that would involve. Changing, yeah, but you're forgetting, so was always you're forgetting a the rule push. that God can do whatever He wants to do. Thunderfoot, you're you're, you're looking actually, at this through blinkered scientific, rationalistic, imperialistic glasses. You need to, you need to put your Kenham biblical glasses on. This is the thing. I, I think I think Concordance has it right. I, I can't see why I didn't see it before. Outside of space, um, in the space outside of space, and in the time outside of time. There's a burning bush. Exactly. Exactly. I don't That's know it. why I didn't see it before. It's so obvious. Well, I'm going to bring in our first caller and see if we can get some sense uh, into the show. 
Um, this is uh, Zach, and he has a question, wait, wait, so I understand, I... about um, evolution. Do, do carry on as I bring him in, Concordance. Yeah, I just want to plug my, my appearance next week. I, I don't know if it's actually going to work. Uh, I'm putting a lot of faith in True Puka. But uh, discussion with PZ Myers next week online. And the skept- that is it's February 2nd, uh, time and location to be announced. Keep, a, keep an eye out for it. But uh, the topic is trolling internet free expression uh, and just generally free thought blogs policy towards free expression. Zach, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. Um, so basically, um, I just wanted to ask a question about how genes evolve. So based on articles that I've read, like this one, um, it says human populations differ one from another almost entirely in varying proportions of the allelic genes of the various sets of hereditary factors and not in the kinds of genes that they contain. So I was just wondering, like, if, if in modern populations, things like regulatory genes and indels and kinds of genes don't really change very much in modern populations, um, how do they evolve in the past? Is it just that it takes very long for them to evolve? Or First off, we know about 30% of new genes are the result of viral sequences. These are basically viruses are escaped genes. They're, they're genes that have evolved to have their own life. But the genes themselves are actually competitive within the genome. They compete with each other. And the only reason they cooperate is they're more successfully passed on to the next generation. But where do they come from? Well, about 30% of them we know probably come from viruses. And these are viruses which uh, entered the cell, found it nice and cozy there, and decided to set up housekeeping. The other genes in the genome said, eh, eh you know, it's like the, 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 the lazy roommate and never does the dishes. But eh, all right, he's paying the rent. Uh, and then you have some that are neo-functionalized, and that's a, a term you can certainly look up. Neo-functionalization is a process by which random sequences uh, can be adapted and then evolutionary, evolutionarily pared down. So the junk DNA is actually, uh, the, the non-coding sequences can be turned into genes with the addition of whatever it is they're missing. Uh, and then, of course, that's at some percentage, and I won't give you a number. And then, there, of course, there's gene duplication. There must have been probably a, a primordial or a first gene. And that first gene was the archetype for everything to come beyond that. Uh, it was probably co-evolving with the first transcription factor. Uh, and that that first gene was then duplicated. And gene duplication is something that does happen. The majority of gene duplications are more or less silent until they become uh, noticeable or, or they they diverge from each other and begin forming two functions. But those are the three processes that we are aware of that result in the formation of new genes. Allelic changes, of course, arise other ways, and I won't talk about it. But we have viral origins or horizontal gene transfers. We have neo-functionalization of, of non-coding sequence usually. Uh, and then we have gene duplications uh, and, and whole chromosome changes. Uh, and indeed, entire genomes have been duplicated uh, detectably in the recent past. And a number of your genes exist in fairly high copy. And if you were to lose one, you probably wouldn't notice. But very often, uh, things like trisomies, aneuploidies, changes in total chromosomes will result in an organism which is still functional but has a new phenotype. I'll give you an example strawberries or bananas. And I'll, I'll pass it off to Thunder. 
I really don't have much to add to that. Um, it's basically the viruses are the places where you can get uh, that there's much more plasticity to change in viruses and there are the retroviruses that actually then can insert those sorts of genes into the the human genome. So you, you can get this sort of, um, the, the, the genes are prototyped elsewhere, um, if you like, and then inserted into uh, uh, more, uh, I'm going to say sophisticated organisms where they can be repurposed or where they tend to be repurposed. But I, th I think your question, which is the majority of evolution in um, uh, whatever, uh, large creature-type populations, uh, occurs by uh, different populations of genes. Yes? Okay, um, well... There are also things like regulatory genes that um, I've read that they were sort of active millions of years ago, but they aren't really active in, in modern populations. Um, like, for example, in the evolution of early primates, um, there were changes to the regulatory genes, but in, like, modern um, ape populations, and even the evolution, sorry, the evolution of, of ape populations, like, you know, the great apes, um, the regulatory genes haven't really changed in a long time. Let, let's define some terms here, Zach, because I think you might be mis, misusing the term. A gene is usually the functional unit in the genome that can produce a protein. So if you're talking about genes which encode a regulatory protein, a protein which turns things on and off in the cell, then that's still just a gene. What it does later doesn't really mean anything. Uh, it's an address, right? Like, uh, like if we had a street address, it doesn't tell you whether it's a business or a personal or a PO box, whatever. All you really get is that it's an address. What you may be talking about are regulatory elements, which are themselves sequences of DNA, which are not used to make proteins, but they still serve a function in turning genes on and turning genes off. And as you can imagine, you can lose these short regulatory sequences. And all that does is change the amount of the protein which is made or under what conditions it is made. But if you change the protein coding sequence, the gene, and that's what we really should be talking about, then you're talking about making a new protein. Usually, that is uh, deleterious. In the vast majority of cases, if you're altering the protein, it's going to have a phenotype. It's going to have a change unless the gene exists in multi-copy, in which case you may emerge with a new function. So let's let's back it up just a bit and make sure we're talking the same language, Zach. Okay. Um, so I'm I'm not sure exactly what I mean what the difference between a regulatory gene and a normal gene is, or just like. Let me get in here for just a second. Yeah. I mean, Concordance had given me a number of peer-reviewed references that I thought were fascinating, wherein uh, you were talking about in the development of the great apes and how this hasn't changed uh, very much at all. When you isolate humans in that equation, there are a number of, of primate genes that have actually been switched off in us that we're supposed to control, like the amount of muscle mass that we have in our jaws, and the reduction of that muscle mass, either in our jaws or in our body-wide systems, has been one of, of several factors that were uh, uh, that were implicated in our 
um, developing brains in the size of our brains being so much larger in the skull being able to expand the way that it did. With gorillas, for example, they have these massive jaw muscles and the, the con- construct of the skull is such that with this muscularity, it is impossible to develop the brain beyond an infant scalp, which is something that we have thanks to a switched-off regulation gene. There's a lot of the primate-specific, or, or there's a lot of the primate genes that we had for uh, regulation that been deactivated were assist, you know, assisted in producing us. So we are, in many senses, you know, a collection of broken monkey genes. So are you saying sorry are you saying that um evolution may actually have a limit in what it can do or sort of like well there's always going to be a limit depending on the uh number of base pairs that you have but i mean well, uh, just to to cover a point that you raised earlier that i think you're a little confused about uh, the difference between developmental genes and uh normal genes um with creatures like humans um there are a lot of genes that turn on and off during the growth of the organism that then don't... Those are the the developmental genes. They don't do a lot once you're fully grown. Yeah? Okay. Um, Well... There sure are that. limits. There are limits to evolution when you talk about generalization versus specialization. Uh, a very generalized life form can go a lot further than specialized ones when the environment becomes dynamic. Uh, that's the only limit of, of evolution that I'm aware of. Zach, I feel like you're trying to ask another question. You just haven't gotten to it yet. Is that is that right? Yeah, maybe that that's true. Um, so I'm not exactly sure how to. Sorry. How do the uh, the developmental genes evolve? I'm not exactly clear on that. That's that's, that's a good true. question. I mean, that, that is a good question. A lot of the genes that are involved in turning g- other genes on and off, we're talking here about the proteins uh, called transcription factors, have modularity. We we see that certain elements are conserved. For example. Uh, every one of the transcription factors has some common uh, DNA binding domain, like a zinc finger protein. That's one of my favorites. Uh, and that zinc finger protein binds up a zinc, which binds to a particular sequence of DNA and either turns it on or turns it off. Um, and you can imagine how that evolved if you think about complexes of genes that found ways to favor themselves. Uh, so, again, you have to think of both, comp- sorry, both competition and cooperation. But the ultimate goal of each gene is to get itself passed on to the next generation. So as much competition as we see between organisms, we also see competition within the genome, between the genes, basically. Um, And those transcription factors, each of the genes that it controls has a particular recognition sequence that allows it to be turned on at the right time by this transcription factor. The most likely reason why all of them have these conserved domains, these really conserved sequences that let them do a job, is that they are duplicated from each other. So many of the transcription factors exist in lots of copies. And you can imagine that if we messed up one of them, we still have the functional copy, no big deal. But what if the new one happens to coincide with turning on certain other genes? In development, that could mean, for example, a change from uh, an animal that is basically um, hexapetal, that has six legs, to something that only has four legs. 
right? Or it could mean that the, the brain genes get switched on a lot longer in one animal versus another. And that can have negative consequences, but of course, as shown in our evolution, it can also have pos- positive consequences. Um, so does it take... Um, are the, the, just the chances of these events very unlikely? And so they, you know, the, the, the amount of evolution that's taken place when you compare modern human populations um, hasn't had time to sort of... Or is it just the, the populations are too small... Um, no, this is what's happening all the time, Zach. If you look in the genome of anybody, uh, pick a random person off the street, you will find that the diversity exists all the time. What differs between us and, say, primitive hominids, uh, earlier hominids, I should say earlier, sorry, uh, is the selection. How many of those variants have to die? We have very poor selection criteria right now because we've managed to make life livable for everyone. We're not red in tooth and claw. We're not struggling to survive every day. And so the diversity always exists. What we're missing today that we had then was a much higher level of selection because people died. Uh, they didn't reproduce. They had uh, much, much more strict environmental stressors. So because there, there's no um, pressures that select for different genes, there's more like random fluctuation? In, in uh, the, the, there is an element here that I, th- I think needs to be added, uh, and that's the total population size. If you have a very large population size, genes cannot propagate very efficiently. You know, a novel gene takes a long time to propagate through the whole population, whereas if you have a very small population, then genes can propagate through the whole um, species relatively quickly. So, I mean, there is this irony. It's only when you're closest to extinction do you have the most um, potential for evolution, uh, that, you're, that you're the most potential for having new genes doing new things spreading through the entire population very quickly. So I want to ask a question about creationists and have, how they've sort of changed over the past 200 years. Because it used to be that uh, a faith you, was... You mean was- how they've evolved? How they've evolved, yes. Uh, but culturally, not biologically. Uh, so it used to be that faith was defined as something that was beyond all reason. And now modern creationists have sort of hijacked the meaning of science uh, to mean something that's going to hold up faith. So now instead of the Bible being, instead of science being the work of the devil, now science has to. Uh, confirm faith. It has to confirm the Bible, and it always will. And it, that itself is a statement of faith. The fact that the Bible will always uphold science, or science will always confirm the Bible, that is a statement of faith, not a statement of science. And if you start with the presupposition that the Bible is true, and that science will, will show that the Bible is true, that's not a scientific approach. But they they have convinced themselves that science is the tool with, you know, the whole creation science evangelism thing. This, if I could have one central idea come out of most of my work, it's that apologetics is the exact opposite of science. And, and I don't mean just generally they're incompatible, but they're exactly the same process, but done the wrong direction. So apologetics means starting with the, the Bible, the, the infallible, inalterable source and then it tries to find the facts which will support that. Exactly, it's the, it's the opposite of science. 
It's exactly the opposite. And that's why you're never going to see a Christian apologist stumble on anything useful. Because they're not only not compatible with, with that exploration, but they are strictly opposed to it. They're actually undoing science through the process of apologetics. Now, that doesn't mean every Christian is unable to comprehend science. It means that the process by which Christian apologetics works is exactly the opposite. It is truly, fundamentally incompatible with uh, good science, the scientific method in general. Yeah, and that, that's what they're opposed to is scientific methodology. I mean, everything that, that, that science is based on and the whole way in which science works, the reason that science works, it, you know, the, the creationists are arguing the direct opposite of every aspect of that. They don't want to have uh, evidence to indicate the conclusion, for example. They want a conclusion, and then they'll find evidence to match that. They will assert things that are not evidently true, and they assert things for no reason, and they want to be able to espouse whatever the hell they believe as though it's a matter of fact simply because they believe it. They don't want to go with peer review. They want to go to the opposite of peer review. They want to believe in subjective interpretation where we understand that uh, eyewitness testimony is the least reliable form of testimony. And if you have eyewitness testimony, then you still have to have corroborative evidence to support that. They insist that hearsay document is uh, eyewitness testimony and that it is the ultimate evidence and requires no other evidence. So anything that, that, that aligns with them is, is, uh, is taken in as a supportive and anything that isn't is openly ignored because everything is running on a bias and a double standard. And it's just like Concordance said, psych- the, the psychology of creationism and in some degrees extreme theism in general is directly opposite of anything that science is and the reason that science is manages that science can focus in on the truth of any matter is the exact reason why religion shards off into thousands of different denominations going off in different directions each one claiming that that particular one is the absolute truth until you get a new heretic who says no this is the absolute truth and then it shards off again and this is why I don't really oppose religion. I only oppose religious apologetics. And that's specifically why, because they make metaphysical claims on the basis of dogma rather than really seeing the universe how it is. The other aspects of religion, I, I, it's not that I'm in favor of them. It's just that I don't feel like opposing them. It doesn't seem like the best use of my resource. I'm sorry, Thunder. Yeah, if you think about it, uh, if you claim to have absolute knowledge about something and that is your ultimate truth that can never be changed, then you have automatically defined the limits of, of that methodology. Whereas science um, is exactly the opposite. It has no limits or boundaries. Right? So dogma is fundamentally limited Essentially, if you if you go with what a lot of these fundamental Christian, Christians say, it's fundamentally limited to a 2,000-year-old book written essentially by goat herders, whereas science has essentially limitless potential. My point is that uh, I think they've changed over the past couple hundred years. Um, they, they used to sort of uh, distance themselves from science, and now they've attempted to hijack it as as confirming their their apologetics and i i just wanted to ask you how you think this they've they've forgotten about the uh the actual definition of faith they've now 
turned faith into into something scientific, or they've attempted to, and they've actually twisted it into when it's actually faith. But uh, why do you think they changed, and how did they change? Is what I'm, well, I'm asking. The, the, one of the first things that comes up in every debate that I have with these people is they always want to redefine faith. And, you know, the word faith appears in the dictionary in two contexts, and they're unrelated to each other and quite different. You know, we have one that is a secure confidence, and then you have another one, which is a belief that is assumed without reason. Now, they know, and the girl that was on at the beginning of the show had already expressed that that's the way they actually believe. It's not based on evidence. It's not based on reason. It is an assertion that is assumed because they want to, because they make up reasons why they want to believe what they want to believe, but they just want to believe what they want to believe, and that's it. And that's the only reason that they've got behind them. But that's not going to compel people. So you have these other people who try to mix the two contexts, and then they try to assume the conclusion as if that's evidence, and since that's not going to cut it, then they have to do these apologetics where they have to come up with arguments that sound scientific, Scientific, like when they come up with baraminology, trying to figure out why everything seems to be. Well, that was drastic. Uh, well, life forms seem to be classified, uh, classified in the, that they are. What was drastic? You suddenly Gordon's? cut off in mid sentence, but you're back with us now. Oh, okay. All right. Well, obviously, yeah, I, didn't I mean, you that. just left us all hanging for a bit there. Yeah. Oh, sorry. That was a dramatic pause. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, maybe yes, there's. I, I think you're right. I mean, I, I, I and and what frustrates me is that when I see the creationists attempt to use science, um, and why they've started to do it, I'm not entirely sure. Uh, it's abundantly clear that they have very little understanding of what they're talking about. I mean, whether you go back to Kent Hovind um, or his uh, parrot Venomfang X. The amount of scientific disinformation that they came out with was quite horrific. And it also seems contrary to the fact that science is filling in so many gaps that the amount of space that they've got to squeeze in their god seems to get less and less. But I, I don't know whether anyone can um, expand on this. I understand that recently William Lane Craig has talked about um, Einstein uh, and I think as either challenge... <laughs> no, he's been doing that for years, DPR. What's he, what's he up to about with Einstein? Oh, uh, well, he's, he's got an alternative theory to relativity. Um, and basically, relativity says that there are no fixed frames of reference. And William Lane Craig says, yeah, there is one, and uh, it's basically God. Um, <laughs> and, uh, yeah, so Einstein was wrong. There is a fixed frame of reference. Several times these people have made an admission to the effect that if you don't believe X, then there are consequences for not believing. And whereas, of course, the scientific position doesn't have that, right? I mean, it doesn't matter if you believe or not. The only reason, the only thing that we would care about is why would you believe if you believe? Because we want to, you know, we, if you have a reason for your belief, then it's going to be the same thing that is going to compel us, and you should be able to demonstrate that. And it's a way of improving your understanding. And the fundamental difference between these two perspectives is that science is a way of improving understanding, and religion is not. Religion simply assumes that, you know, you know more than anyone else can know, that you, you have some cap into all knowledge, and that it doesn't really matter if you knew anything at all, because it's all very personal. It's all some undefined plan for your life, and that's all that it really is. But it's not going to get anywhere as far as progress. When it, it, what's laughable for me is when I read 
uh, creationists arguing with each other. I was reading an, an article where Ken Ham is arguing with Kent Hovind about the uh, the basking shark that was a a that hit that uh, Kent Hovind said was a plesiosaur. They're arguing back and forth on scientific data, and it's it's amusing because the the article was something uh, uh, maintaining creationist credibility, and just the title alone already tells you how amusing the article is because neither side of this conversation gives a damn. About truth or accuracy or scientific data, they're just trying to maintain their own income, their own multi-million-dollar well, in, uh, empires of lying to people. That's all that matters to them. And I would say that it, it's it's worse than that. That you can actually quantify this to a, a fairly reasonable degree, in that technology is usually the application of scientific um, knowledge, the practical implementation of scientific knowledge, and those are usually protected by patents. Um, so patents gives you a fairly direct um, measure of how applicable um, some knowledge is. It's, it gives you a measure of how good methodologies are at actually discovering new stuff, particularly new stuff that's useful. And one thing that you'll notice is there really aren't that many churches that are funded by patents. Um, one of the uh, classic examples, I think, of where creationists totally fail at science is when they use the expression kinds. Now, we had Venom Fang X on the show uh, oh, 18 months or so ago, um, and he was asked uh, or challenged um, Aaron about this, about how many, Aaron's question was, how many kinds of cat did Noah take on the R? And after the best part of about 20 minutes, the best that uh, Venom Fang X could come up with was to say that he knew that his domestic cat wasn't related to the big cats like the lions, and there were some middle cats as well, and these were different kinds. Uh, this is, I kid you not, you can go back and watch it. This is how wonderfully scientific his definition was. So I, after that program, I made a video, and I know he got it because I sent it to him, and I showed him two cat-like things and asked him to tell me um, whether they were of the same kind or not, and what uh, tests could be done to determine this. Of course, he never got back to me, nor will any creationist get back to you, because they cannot define kinds. It's, it's a nonsensical definition. And this is why I don't understand why they try and use science, because they embarrass themselves so much when they do try. If Again, it's a matter of the original question, though. The question was, you know, how have they changed tactics? How are they adopting science? I actually don't think that there have been any changes in the way that apologetics work. I think what you're probably picking up on is the fact that the apologetics are now more all-encompassing. They're cherry-picking from a broader list of sources. You know, theology used to be strictly, the apologetics game used to be strictly a matter of these sort of untestable, unprovable philosophical concepts like free will or uh, omnibenevolence. Can God make a rock so big even he can't lift? Those kinds of questions used to be where apologetics would, would find the most productive value. Nowadays, because philosophy is, I think, on the wane, it's, it's not as, as much in the public eye, uh, science is the avenue that the apologetics are going to cherry-pick. They're going to find those facts within science that they find the most confirmatory and reframe them in whatever way they think is best for their viewpoint. 
Uh, but I don't think there's anything new about that. And I, I think if you go back as far as uh, uh, St. Augustine of Hippo, you look at the writings there, he was, if you will, uh, doing the apologetics from the Greek, from, from the, the traditional Greek ideas of classical forms. Uh, and he incorporated a lot of those ideas and cherry-picked from them to, to support the Bible. Uh, and he's probably the most scientific uh, religious writer of his time. And of course, what we hear now is the fine-tuning argument, which is really no different, uh, is it, to the Paley's Watch argument, that there had to be a designer, because nothing would work so wonderfully if there wasn't. And you know, and they're, they come they're up, And they come up with odds about what is the probability of the... Um, constants of nature being as they are that are so suitable for creating life and there's a couple of things, I'm going to come back to Thunder on this because he knows more about this uh, and how ridiculous it is to pick these um, or say that there is any sort of probability about this, it just doesn't make sense but look what's out there look at the billions of galaxies and all the empty space and all the places where life cannot exist and look where it can, so far as we know at the moment on the crust of an average planet orbiting an average star in an average solar system. It's hardly fine-tuning. Thunder, I know that you you're, you had an issue, you did a video on the, 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 the idea of the oh, possibilities. Several. Um, the most obvious one is that actually assigning probabilities to events that you don't know how probable they are is point, you know, it's an exercise in time-wasting. It would be like saying, um, what's the probability of a set? And then trying to calculate the probability of a set. Well, unless you actually know that you're rolling a dice, or uh, that dice has all sixes on every face, there are a whole horde of things that could affect this calculation until you actually have a mechanism, unless you actually have an idea of all the effect, all the factors that can affect the outcome. Putting a probability to it is pointless. My God, Aaron, that's, uh, is that a snake? Yeah, I'm, 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 I'm not like Python. Python. Um, there's not another strategy. Go, go. Let's, go, let's go back uh, first to Zach and then to Concordance. Okay, so there's another strategy that I've seen a creationist try to pull once um, for denying the credibility of this quote-unquote atheist uh, point of view towards uh, the history of the universe, which is to say that uh, some basically a, a statement doesn't have scientific, it's not a scientific statement unless it's used in some form of modern technology. So evolution is basically a faith position because it, it deals with the past, because we weren't there, sort of. And uh, so it's, they're basically saying it's just another faith position, just like creationism. Have you noticed how they always want to equate uh, science with a faith, faith position or with a religion whenever there's an aspect of faith or religion that is obviously recognizably bad? Okay, that's well, what I mean, they the, want to the, put the, the thing That's is, what they want to put it on us. Hold on, let me, I, got, I got a perfect il illustration for this. They always want to take testimony because that's what they want to believe, what they want to believe, and they're just going to want to believe that, and they're not going to let anything else dissuade that. So they're going to make the assumption, they're going to, they're going to drink their Kool-Aid, they're, they're going to buy the farm, you know, in this case, 
And they're not going to accept any evidence that goes against it. They're not interested in reality. They're not interested in truth. Testimony, we know, is the worst kind of evidence that there is. And here's here's a demonstration of that that anybody ought to be able to see. You go to a small island. You post a guard on this island. um, You both have matching boots on, and you have him post. This is your land. He's on the beach. He's supposed to watch the beach, make sure nobody comes over here, right? You trust this guy, longtime friend, whatever. Now, you come back to him the next morning, and he swears that no one has walked on this beach. He's guarded. it. He's been on his post. He's been reliable. And yet, there is a pair of, of shoe prints that doesn't match either of your shoes walking across the beach right in front of him. Now, what do you believe? Do you believe the testimony, or do you believe the evidence? Hmm. Now, can, can, I, can I broaden saw, this discussion a little? One second. It's important Sorry. to realize that nobody ahead, saw any Yet, we know, without any eyewitness, that somebody was there. So, l- let me bring this a little bit, because the religious apologetics I thought, are not I the thought only kind of apologetics. The shoe prints could be there on their own. I thought they could, it could occur naturally, the shoe footprints, because you don't believe in intelligent design. <laughs> oh, I mean, can, can, can I briefly put in a bit here, concordance? Yeah, I mean, if I was actually confronted with that sort of argument that... Um, evolution has no technological applications. I would just go straight to the actual technological applications, which is basically in uh, dealing with genetic populations, particularly viruses. Uh, uh, not virus. Yeah, um, yeah, viruses and um, what are the antibiotics with bacteria? These are two areas where evolution is crucially important. Um, Yes, if if you come across a new bacteria, the first thing you want to do is trace its genetic heritage. And once you establish these baseline, um, the, these rules in the present, all you're really doing is extrapolating it into the past. In the same way that you would say that you believe that the Earth, not believe that the that the most sensible model is that the Earth was orbiting the Sun. Uh, 50,000 years ago, even though that we've got no measurements of it, right? just because we don't have measurements of it, that we have a robust model in the present and that we have no sensible reasons for believing that it was different in the past. Well, we have all these esoteric uses for evolutionary models uh, to explain our understanding of human genomics or, or genomics in general. If you want to find a regulatory sequence, uh, as you were talking about earlier, what you do is you grab a thousand people and you look for where mutations do not occur, uh, or you look across uh, very closely related organisms to find those sequences which are highly conserved. Now, there's no reason to predict that if these organisms were created independently of each other, uh, that somehow they were designed for a purpose, that they would necessarily recycle the the same information with the same defects, with the same mistakes, with the same thumbprints on them. Um, But, in fact, that's what we see. So the evolutionary model is much, much more productive in terms of genomic understanding. And there are a number of esoteric applications where we can calculate specific numbers which tell us what must have happened in the past uh, that that have guided our understanding of of genomic medicine, personalized medicine, uh, pharmacogenomics, and a number of other applications within evolution, most especially, though, within things like 
population structures, population genetics, conservation biology. If you want to know whether or not an animal is truly endangered, you have to understand the nature of evolutionary change within their genome. But I want to go back to something that we were talking about earlier, which is just generally apologetics. There are more apologetics than just religious apologetics. There are, for example, Nazi apologists or Holocaust apologists or uh, slavery apologists or racial uh, violence apologists, people who are looking for any excuse to justify a position that they have decided on in advance. And if you broaden that, you begin to see the psychological mechanisms involved. And the most important one is confirmation bias. We recognize that a fact is valid because it meets our pre predecided criteria. Aha! This validates why it is that uh, more black people are in jail. This validates the, the fact that the Holocaust never happened. And in any kind of denialism, whether it's evolution denialism, which is what we call creationism, or it's HIV denialism, there's this cherry-picking that goes along with a confirmation bias. When we recognize some fact as being useful to our preconceived agenda, then we latch on to it, and we expand upon it, and we build a case upon it. But it's not the scientific method. Now, you're, you're asking about whether or not science is truly faith, and the short answer is that it's peer review. It is the competitive nature uh, and the lack of dogma in science that prevents it from being capable of forming these kinds of uh, apologia or, or apologetics that we see in so many other areas. We can't afford to have dogma. We can't afford to have illusions. We can't even afford to have a very strong agenda because there's someone else out there. Now, we're humans, so we certainly have these kinds of things, but we can't afford them in the sense that if I advance an agenda, I get labeled as a bad scientist. Clearly, this person is allowing their own bias to affect the interpretation of the data or the collection of the data. And that makes you a fraud in scientific circles. On the other hand, if you're Ken Ham and you say, put on your biblical glasses, uh, or, or if you're a, a Nazi apologist and you say, well, the Nazis really weren't so bad, here's why, that's perfectly acceptable. So I even find that within historical or um, social contexts that you see the same kind of religious apologetics, and you can synthesize that all together into a generalized principle of people who have obviously decided in advance what position they're going to support. It is the opposite of the skeptical method, uh, the scientific method being specifically for science, the skeptical method being the process by which we ruthlessly examine our own positions for confirmation bias, for attempts to delude ourselves into believing something which we cherish or want to be true. I'll end there. Yeah, I want to add. Uh, can, to I, can I ask a related question? Said. Well, uh, let, let Aaron just make his comment. No, 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 okay, let him go. Okay, exactly. You, 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 you can go first. You can go first. Well, he no, doesn't want to. He's offering you okay. the opportunity. Okay. So. okay. Yeah. Um, so I wanted to basically ask a question that's not really answerable, but I thought it would be interesting to think about. Uh, it, I, I was watching a a discussion that Richard Dawkins was having on some show with, um, I think, yeah, he was on some talk show, and he basically 
said that there are some things in science that you can know for certain that won't change. It's sort of uh, Ray, Com- Ray Comfort likes to um, basically diss science by saying that uh, we've changed the date of the age of the Earth from a million years to a billion years, and you know how do we know that it won't change in the future? How do we know that it won't be two trillion years in in a hundred years? How do we know that anything in science is actually true? If science is well, is, is constantly changing, so I just I'm going to ask you. Well, science I, I, is constantly. I'm going to go to Thunder first. Uh, well, no, I'm going to go to you, Aaron, because you you would want okay, to say something you. before. But please, Zach, no, I'm not you, you I, have I to you have comfort. to understand there is a difference between just uh, random change and refining. Aaron, right, that's what I'm saying. The, the kind I, of change that science makes is it's constantly getting more accurate. It doesn't suddenly shard off and go the wrong direction ever. It's like a game of 20 questions. You're always zooming in closer, getting a more refined uh, version of the answer. And like I said, religion shards off in different directions. And it's like playing 20 assumptions. You're never going to get there. You're never going to. You're never going to be able to verify that anything you believe is actually true. And the, the reason is, is because philosophy may have a you know some variable interpretation of what the word truth means, but in science, it really boils down to that that, that truth is essentially fact, and it's just whatever we can show to be true. And with that definition, there is no truth in religion. Go ahead. I mean, um, for me, uh, oh, come, you, you, you have a go first. Okay, so um, it is. I, I agree with you that uh, science science is like a sort of like a hyperbola that that slowly that reaches an asymptote and never never just shoots off in, in another direction. That's true, but I just wanted to like, how do you know what exactly? Like, how do you know that, for example? The Earth is is round, for example. How do you know that, that knowledge will never change? Uh, we don't. Well, it's provisional. Yeah. All all Absolutely. knowledge in science is provisional and subject to falsification. That that, if you want to read the work of Karl Popper, will explain the opposite of what was uh, what confirmationism, the idea that we we could know anything for sure. Instead, we have, and this is a phrase I'm going to steal from Thunder. We have models of predictive utility. We, we have uh, useful ideas which are explanatory, and they're only as valuable to us so long as they explain all of the uh, phenomena we observe. So, for example, if uh, something new uh, comes out, that, that maybe the, the shape of space is somehow different, and, and in fact the Earth is a cube, you won't find uh, most scientists fighting against it. Now, they will not go gently uh, into that good night. They will, they will ask a lot of questions. They will demand a very high standard of proof depending on the level of upset that that new theory brings in. The same thing is true in biology. There are a number of really radical ideas in biology uh, that are still being assessed. Uh, and they do represent paradigm shifts and, and things that we never really thought of before. And we're always open to that. And we're always open to that because the, the last guy to get it uh, isn't getting the grants, isn't getting the prestige, isn't going to move with the times. So what you'll find, though, is, and, and I highly recommend, I'm going to plug my own video on this, but there's an essay that I, I read um, by Isaac Asimov, 
called the uh, relativity of wrong. And what it's talking about is that science very rarely overturns entire models. What they do is they refine something. And the reason why they rarely overturn something is that the model has been sufficiently explanatory for such a long time that there's a very good chance that it's still a viable model. So to say that, that's, for example, Newtonian mechanics uh, were overturned by Einstein's relativity isn't exactly true. It was a very profound refinement. Uh, there were some pretty subtle things that had to be added. But for the most part, Newtonian relativity was pretty accurate. You know, the Earth, from our point of view, based on the instruments we have at the time, was more or less flat. I mean, the deviation from flat is pretty doggone small. But it's, as our uh, instruments I mean, became this, more precise... Go ahead. Go this, ahead is the, this is the crazy thing. I mean, most people in your day-to-day lives do not think of yourselves as living on the surface of a sphere. You look out and you see a two-dimensional landscape. Very few people actually see the Earth curling away under their feet. And they live on the planet for their whole lives. And uh, I would reckon that probably one in ten know which way it's spinning. Yeah, I'd like to throw something on that too. I've, I've met a couple of people for whom it seems a psychological impossibility to envision their position on a map. And I don't understand what what goes on in these other people's heads. But I mean, like, I mean, I know I always imagine where I am on the globe. I mean, it's it would be disorienting for me to not know what states or what you know, not to know so the surrounding geography and and my place on it. And there are other people who do everything by a by a two dimensional scale of landmarks to let them know if they're going in the right direction, and they have no concept. If you show them a map and say you are here, they don't get that, and they can't use that map because they can't think in that abstract. I don't know how that is, but that might be part of the problem that we're having here. By the way, I want to plug my own video too. The fourth foundational <laughs> falsehood of creationism talks about what Concordance was saying about how science and religion act exactly opposite of each other, and that if if science were to employ any of the uh, any of the traits that religion uses, it, it would result in those scientists being declared frauds. But when we have what we reveal as a lying scientist, would be a revealed truth in religion. So it's completely opposite. All right, I'm done. I would just like about one uh, brief point, and another way of looking at this is that science is the descriptors of reality, and as such, it is plastic to reality. So the greater the understanding you have of reality, the better science models it. Um, and as uh, Concordance pointed out earlier, the metric that we use to assess how good our models of reality are is can we actually get predictive utility out of them? Yeah, you know, who is it? Who was the uh, the Greek philosopher that that says all knowledge starts with the knowledge that we know nothing? Or is it Plato? I think it's Plato. I thought it was Socrates. Uh, but it's Plato it's speaking for Socrates. Yeah, it's Plato speaking for Socrates. But but that that really is something you have to learn to embrace in science, and that is that we can never actually shrink ourselves down and see what's going on. So we're using inference in a number of situations. I can never see the inner contents of a cell. That's just not how it works. I will never see uh, you know the exact sequence of a pe- well. Actually, I might someday. Uh, but, but I'll be looking at a micrograph. I'll be looking at you know, dots of ink on a pa- piece of paper because I can't get down there. I can find a number of methods which only make sense if. 
But there are a number of assumptions that go into that. Looking through a microscope, right? I, I'm magnifying the light, but I'm not looking at the true object. I'm looking at an image. Uh, and that is where I find value in philosophy is, is at least that basic statement. is You have to give up a belief in a concrete reality. You have to give up uh, thinking that there's value in knowing one thing for really for sure. Uh, because there is no value in that. Because it's always those assumptions, those those things that we think we know, which hold us back from the true discovery of questioning absolutely everything, even the nature of reality. And, and I think that the kind of question that you're describing, if, I, if, I, if I'm understanding this right, Zach, is the kind of um, sneering question of, you know, what is it you, you guys think you even really know? Well, the answer is nothing, and I'm very proud of that. There's nothing that I know 100% for sure, because everything I know is subject to revision if reality shows to me a different image. If, if my inferences are somehow steering me a different way, I'm open to that. I don't bog myself down with assumptions. I have to take a philosophical point of opposition here. Uh, while there are those who philosophize that we can't tell if this is a computer-enhanced hallucination like in the Matrix, the fact remains that reality, the rules of reality still apply to us, whether this is a video game reality or not. So within the confines of this reality, it, reality is still real for us. And it, with these rules applied, we are still able to know for certain, for example, that there was never a global flood and that there would, the Tower of Babel is not the way that the Bible pointed it out to be, there are things we know for certain, even if we can't say for absolutely certain that reality is real beyond the reality that we know. I would just actually add a, a little philosophical point on what Gordon's was saying is that you were saying that you'll never actually get down and actually see the sequence of the base pairs or things like this. Um, I think, in many ways, that's the way that you actually... That's the position that you are with all of reality. That you only When you say that you see things, in reality all you're doing is seeing photons that originated from that object. The only difference is that your mind is actually doing the processing on those photons to recreate the reality. So in that sense, you can see these invisible objects in the way that you can actually perceive the rest of the world. Does that make sense? Very true. Very true. Yeah, we create models in our, our minds rather than actually directly perceiving the, the object in quote-unquote reality. But um, I, I, I can embrace that. I, I feel quite comfortable with that. That's all. Okay. Uh, is it is it possible to disprove idealism? Define idealism. Uh, the belief that basically um, everything is perception. So, without mind, uh, reality doesn't really exist. Now, that doesn't mean that there are no scientific laws. It just means that those scientific laws are ultimately laws about consciousness that are, and so. Control is just another subset of those laws, which is very limited. So we have no control over reality. Sorry, you, you've shifted a bit. Just start again. You're saying that idealism is the ability to prove something without a mind. No, it's, it's just the belief that everything, the only thing that exists is consciousness, basically. Well, that there are no such thing as other objects. Might be true. 
Yeah. Oh, right, that's the global skeptic position. <laughs> it's, well, it's not a very useful that, position. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> Um, and the reason paper, that it's yes, in we are in practice no. Yeah, and the reason is, as I said, because there, there are still rules that apply to us, and so reality is still real, even if it isn't. But couldn't reality just be a set of laws that affect our conscious experience? Even if, as I said, well, if this is just a video game, we're still subject to those rules. Sure, but I, I'm just saying idealism isn't. They're not. It's not mutually exclusive but with idealism the, that there are rules. The, this is the thing. Um, why do you actually try to work out what's happening? Why are you actually trying to work out anything about reality at all? And if you actually sit down and think about it, you'll work out it's because you care about what happens in the future. This is why you're trying to create models of reality. And this is where the whole endeavor of actually science springs from, is it allows you to predict what things will be like in the future. Right. I, I mean, otherwise, why, why would you care whether solipsism is true or not true? Why would you actually bother asking questions unless you actually cared what's going to happen in the future, unless you were trying to actually create models about reality? Well, I mean, those models that describe the, the functioning of reality could be models that describe the way consciousness works for humans. Um, so you could, I mean, for example, uh, the laws of chemistry govern uh, the way, well, first of all, the way that that objects work in, in nature, but that's that just, that has to do with the way that... What I'm saying is, unless, like, obviously there are things that exist in reality that are beyond our, our everyday experience, like... Sorry, I, th I thought you were questioning whether we could actually know that for certain. We can't, but... Well, I mean, what is, what is your position? Do you think that we can know that or can't know that? I think we can't know that. We can't know okay, that, so, so why are you basing a question on a, a proposition that you don't... So yeah, because you may well just be dreaming that there are things that are beyond our conception. Well, I think that conception would, in that picture, conception, or in my picture, conception would just be a subset of reality, a subset of conscious reality. The, so, the, the way that I would view this is that seeing as we are trying to work out what happens in the future, there are successful methods for doing this and unsuccessful methods for doing this. And one of the actual things that is an unsuccessful method is to actually propose solutions that either cannot be resolved or require more variables to resolve than you actually had to begin with. Yeah, it's a sort of Occam's razor type thing. The, well, thing, about proposing, the thing about proposing these um, questions which you can never resolve is they don't actually help you any. They don't actually increase your knowledge of the universe and they have no predictive capability. And everything else that... Uh, um, every other uh, line of reasoning you have access to will say that... Engaging in these sorts of problems is just a waste of time. You've got better things to do. Yeah. Well, I would argue that it's a tautology, basically. Uh, so it's not resolvable because tautologies are not falsifiable because tautologies are just true, basically. Um, well, tautologies are tautologies. 
I think well I, I think that uh, this kind of philosophical uh, wandering is sort of fun even if it's completely useless yeah, so, it, it is completely useless, and that's why I've said so many times that that I have no interest in philosophy. Well, not everything has to be useful. I, I, okay, okay. I'll grant. I'm sure there, there's something in some aspect of my life that isn't useful or that I like for non-useful reasons. Sure, but there's no there's, there's Zach, no practical. Allow, allow me to ask you a question, Zach. Um, the likes of William Lane Craig, um, a professional philosopher. Uh, seeks to use philosophy to prove or argue into existence things such as God. Do you think that philosophy can be used in that way? Um, when it, if it comes let, to but, a, let me be specific. Do you think philosophy can argue into existence anything? No, I don't think so. What do you think of William Lane Craig's attempts to do so? Um, his attempts to do so are... Well, I mean, if you want to prove something, that something exists in the universe, uh, you have to have a good scientific reason to believe it. You can't just, you know, hand-wavingly, you know, just come up with some logical argument that that such and such a being must exist based on my assumptions. It doesn't work that way. But I think the whole thing with, with the tautology of, of solipsism or idealism, it's a little different than that because... I'm not. I'm not wishing anything into being by by making an idealistic claim. Really, um, it's more that I'm just. I don't know. I don't know exactly how to explain it because it is a tautology, but it do, it doesn't really matter. Also, but it's fun to to think about. It's been in the public eye because of um, certain media, and I think that people are intrigued by the idea of reality not being reality or not being real. Things like The Matrix, right? That was a classic one. And I remember going into it and thinking, oh my gosh, I had no idea it was coming. Um, but there are a number of other sci-fi type movies where people are hooked up to virtual realities, to simulated realities, or um, you know, The Holodeck was, was one that always was very intriguing. You know, they, they had multiple episodes where they'd use the holodeck as a, as a framing device for people not truly know, knowing what was real. But the thing about the holodeck is there was always that point where you could say, you know, arch, and the arch would come out and you'd walk out the doors. But then how did you know you were walking into the real enterprise? Okay, can we all do this together? One, two, three. Arch. Arch. <laughs> oh, mine showed up. Mine showed up. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Mine's on the fritz again. Um, but everyone, everyone else doesn't even um, know how to get out. At least we know how to get out. You know, clap your hands together and say arch. Some of us don't have the faintest idea what you're talking about, Thunder. Well, if you're not a nerd, you shouldn't be on the show. <laughs> okay. I was going to say exactly the same thing. <laughs> well, I'm proud to be the non-nerd here. Uh, but exactly. I think people are fascinated by the question. You know, are are, you, are we the the dream or the dreamer? Um, uh, no, you know, Plato's not cave. Is all of that. By the question. It is. It's fun. No, it isn't fun. It's boring. It is. Okay. Yeah. No. While I, I will watch Star Trek and Doctor Who, and strangely, DPR watches neither one. I find philosophy just completely boring. No point of interest in it at all. I'm I'm sorry. I'm the same way with football. I don't get it. I, I would rather watch the the static between channels. I honestly find that more interesting. Um, I mean, I, I can see the appeal of football. It's got an element of tribalism to it. Uh, you know, it's your guys kicking the crap out of somebody else's guys 
philosophy, the main problem that I have is there is only, yeah, it's, it's only basically the philosophy of scientific naturalism that has actually chalked up any achievement to its name. All of the others just sort of uh, exercises in time wasting. So I made a video, and this is kind of a call to action to everybody. Um, there, there's a cancer doctor in Houston, um, and I won't say anything libelous here because he has really good attack lawyers, but uh, he has produced uh, 61 clinical trials and only ever closed one, never been published. In 37 years, the guy has never managed to finish a clinical trial, and yet he's charging people upwards of $600,000 out of pocket, mind you, for the treatment. Uh, it, it's, so it's very poorly understood. He is keeping it entirely to himself, and, and you know he lives in a $6 million home, and yet they've made these movies about him, or he hired some, or not, not hired, sorry, a commercial art director uh, decided to make a movie about Dr. Stanislaw Brzezinski uh, and his miracle cancer cure. So I... I you know, recommend you go to see the the my version of the uh, the events, but also there is a uh, committee for the skeptical examination. I'm not getting the name quite right of Brzezinski, uh, and they ran a campaign basically to shame the guy into donating some money to, towards real cancer research, where they they challenged him to match their own donations to St. Jude's uh, Children's Hospital. Uh, and I also wanted to just give Arn a chance. I don't know if DPR messing up your your scheduling here, but uh, Arn has a short story to share about uh, the Brzezinski Clinic. Well, uh, yes, please that. do, uh, Zach. I am going to remove you because, as ever, I apologise. Um, with the last have, sort of like twenty minutes to go, um, suddenly everyone wants to talk to us. But thank you very much indeed for your call. Yeah, once upon a time, some uh, some not you know a year or so ago. Uh, as uh, many of you know, my granddaughter uh, uh, lost her battle with leukemia. And when things were becoming desperate, of course, people will take you know, desperate suggestions. And a number of people who are not very comfortable with skepticism had suggested the Brzezinski Clinic and referred me over there. We had already done, I think, adequate uh, examination of that um, of their offer and what what they were arguing for and what they had on their side. And it was also uh, about two days after P.Z. Myers had re- had posted something about the Brzezinski Clinic on Ferengula, so I thanked P.Z. for speaking up the way he did. Uh, yes, this guy, basically, his plan is to inject people with urine, and somehow he convinces them that that is going to cure them of cancer. And uh, uh, he... Charges a huge amount of money for this, and then he creates these videos where all you have all these people claiming that they were somehow miraculously cured. But as Concordance said, when you go for the uh, when you go for the documentation, no closed cl- no closed trial. So how how could that be? No. To, to be That's, clear, it's not urine. It, it is a, a an extract of urine. It's not being synthesized. Um, from chemical sources, but it's a sodium phenylbutyrate. It was an orphan drug, was effective uh, on certain um, other diseases. And so he's picked it up, relabeled it, uh, it, and is is making a fortune on it uh, there in Houston. And there's just not not enough evidence of effectiveness. Uh, And we just, we, we want people to see 
our type of videos, the skeptical side of the point of view, and not just his highly promotional 100-minute uh, Eric Marola-produced uh, video that does nothing but present him as an alternative to uh, the weaknesses and shortcomings of conventional cancer therapy. Yeah, the, the thing I'd like to bring up is how um, some video games, as I think, can really sort of... Uh, bring about people's interest in science, that sort of thing. Um, I mean, some, like, you know, um, Minecraft, for example, if any of you ever heard of it, I'd assume that at least one of you might have heard it. Um, nope, requires I still addicted to it. Well, you have a good son. <laughs> um, yeah, but that's, I think, actually um, encourages a lot of critical thinking. Um, with Minecraft, you have to, if you're going to go really advanced into it, um, there's basically a thing called redstone within it, and it has all sorts of different functions, and it can do lots of different things. Um, and, you know, I just want to know if if you guys think that um, video games in general can be a helper to, well, promote sci- scientific thinking and critical thinking, that sort of thing. I can tell you my son uh, has shown me some of the videos where the people the logic gates together and the, the note blocks... And then they use it to play music, basically, in in real life, or not in real life, virtually. Uh, but but the amount of effort they put in always kind of depresses me uh, when they could be using something else. It's very creative. It's In that sense, it's positive. Um, but I don't know how much actual science people pick up. I, I honestly don't know that they're using their critical thinking skills for one simple reason, and that is that the games tend to have very closed systems. Uh, that only allow a certain range of actions, whereas reality is is much more yeah. science is much more open. And I wonder if setting the wrong expectations that answers are going to be fairly easy to figure out uh, gets people frustrated. And I think I've seen that in young scientists who expect science to be a matter of some parts A, some parts B equals something new. Uh, I think we maybe we give the wrong perception. The same thing is true. We, we curse about it all the time at, at, at the, the place where I work, which is that CSI has set up this stupid expectation of how criminal lab science works or how lab science in general works, where you hand somebody a piece of, uh, a, you know, swab of someone's cheek and say, go sequence this. And they come back 30 seconds later, there's some cool blue lights, uh, and they're like, here's the sequence. Well, geez, I wish it were that easy. You know, I wish, I wish that the process were that TV-friendly. But in practice, there's so much more that goes into these things, and I wonder if that sets the wrong expectation. I mean, my reckoning is the that sort of thing, ironically, video games are basically the future of education. Um, in that if you think about it, um, what do you actually want out of an education system? You want people to have useful skills when they, by the time they emerge. And what's more, what you really want is um, employers want a dynamic record of what people are capable of doing. Now, at the moment, that's very poorly served, right? People basically leave college or whatever. They have some very broad and almost useless description of their abilities. Whereas if you actually sort of uh, modularize this, 
um, into skills. I mean, very much like, say, for instance, World of Warcraft, where you do things, you acquire skills, that actually then goes into a file where it's listed such that people can actually search um, to see if you've got certain skills. Now, I don't see... Now, I, I would agree with Concordance that at the moment this is largely a wasted... You know, the playing the games for education at the moment is largely a waste of time because no one's actually put the effort into turning them into a real learning tool. Um, so, yeah, you, you can sort of force the square brick into the round hole, but it's not very useful. Whereas if you actually had... Um, uh, programs like this uh, where you can do your experiments in a Newtonian world and completely simulated and learn uh, about Newtonian physics that way, then that's fantastic. And if you have the courses modularized, people sort of earn the brownie points, you can actually make it into a game. People respond very well to games. In, in this way, I think the addictive element that um, a lot of the uh, computer games industry has put a lot of effort into is something that could be very well repurposed as an um, if you can make, give that same addictiveness to uh, learning tools, then I, I think that's the way forward. It reminds me we had Professor Fulham Philip Moriarty from Nottingham University Physics Department on the show, I think about three months ago, and someone called in and mentioned that there was a game you could get, a uh, free download, um, which um, was basically about that. relativity and what would happen if the uh, constant um, uh, C had changed. So again, um, yeah. that's a link that I'll include in the description to these videos. Concordance. And it's a, it's a neat video. I, I'm the one that mentioned it. Um, but it's not really a game for entertainment. And that's, that's, I guess, what I'm kind of talking about here, is that most of the entertainment-focused games probably not teaching very accurate science. I think they're a useful educational tool, but educational games are usually not the uh, same kind of replayability as I, I entertainment was games. The one that always comes to my mind is this game called Grand Theft Auto. Where right, uh, right. you you sleep with the hookers to get your health back, and there's right. one of these great Im- image board motivational demotivational posters of basically a dad with his little son on his lap, and he's like, "Look, son, if you beat the hooker up, you can get the money back again." <laughs> <laughs> and he's, yeah, the, the, the caption something like "parenting, yeah, responsible parenting" or something. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I have a favorite game, and it's, it's Portal 2. Portal 2 is, is, for my money, the best game ever made. Uh, and it's yes. the most fun because it's a puzzle game with a strong physics component. Now, I don't know that the skills that you learn in Portal 2 will necessarily be useful, but I'm holding my breath until the Portal gun is invented uh, because I, I have a lot of uses for it already. But it does make you think, and I'll say that, it, it probably exercises parts of your brain associated with analytical thinking. But as we far as teaching awareness, about by the, skill, by, the, by the way, concordance, portal to the left, past the, past the salt, okay? What, okay. what, oh, what else? Pa- pa- <laughs> salt, salt coming through on the left, okay? Alright. I got it! That was, that was uh, part of my point, that a lot of those games have um, heavy problem-solving uh, components to it. Um, like, say, uh, what's a good example? 
you know, any, any sort of um, game like, say, Half-Life 2, which had a fairly strong sort of puzzle element to it, um, and also you're a physicist that runs around and kills aliens after accidentally ending the world, so you know, that kind of idealises the phys- physicist. Um, but, you yeah, know, like, I, I think when it comes down to, like, as you all said, like, um, right now there isn't much realism in a game and that's partially because of the technology. Because, because um, you know, video games are still technically in their dormant, their early childhood. They're still sort of um, trying to get everything together. I mean, I mean, once they finally release a sort of really realistic physics sort of game, um, I think what Thunderfoot said is right. Like, we that could really be used for um, educational purposes. And there's an untapped market there. If if you can sell a game that kids want to play, I mean, maybe something that um, explores chemistry, right? You know, you have to, I don't know, I'm, I'm trying to think of a really good way to explore chemistry, but if you could come up with a game that really was inter- entertaining and informative, uh, there's a market for that because, of course, parents are very willing to do this, but so would schools, uh, you but, know. But to, to an extent, that... Um that technology already exists. Um, oh, sure. There's, there's this new uh, computer game, which I've seen, where basically, um, I think it's Nintendo, where you get to interface with a book, and it's a sort of virtual book, and you get to cast spells, and you have to do certain things to cast the spells. There is no reason whatsoever why you couldn't do a similar... Um, game, but with chemistry. But I, I think a lot of the problem is that uh, there really isn't a market for this sort of thing. Um, or let me say, the market for um, selling things that go under the title of education but aren't actually education is bigger than the, the, the real educational media. Just like the market, when we were talking earlier about the cancer treatment, there is a much bigger market, well, not much bigger, but there is a, a significant um, component where people are best basically selling bullshit as a cancer cure for the simple reason that having cancer cure on there is uh, uh, something that's marketable. Uh, saying that it's educational is marketable, even if it's not actually educational. If I can, if I can give an example of a game that I remember playing as a kid, it was Oregon Trail. All right, and I feel like there was some educational value there, although of course it usually degenerated down into uh, what is it, buying a thousand boxes of bullets <laughs> and just going out and shooting stuff as you go. Uh, but that kind of idea, you know, I know our school invested in one copy for every computer that they had, and this is back when the Apple II was was the state of the art. Because I'm old. I'm really old. But 65 million copies of Oregon Trail have been sold as I look up the Wikipedia article here. That's a lot of copies. Again, I, I think there's a big market for it. Not is It has to be fun. It has to be something kids are actually into. But if you can merge all of that together, you, you can sell it to the schools and to the parents who are worried about violent video games. I think that'd be awesome. The trouble, the trouble is, Concordance, you say you're old. I'm so old that they didn't have computers when I was growing up. On which I they could have play a computer game. <laughs> Didn't they invent the abacus during your lifetime? It was around that sort of time, yeah. Okay, so on this Oregon Trail game, is there an opportunity when the, when the snow gets too deep that you can eat the other players? 
No, but they all die of cholera and dysentery. <laughs> the, the fun thing was to give them all dumb names like Booger and, well, Booger all as far as I'll go. But, uh, and then they show you a tombstone saying, here lies Booger. He died of cholera. Uh, and then you can shoot stuff. Uh, and that was always the fun part of the game. I'm going to insist, given the time, and uh, we should normally finish in three minutes. We always overrun, uh, but I've got one more call that I'm going to uh, try and squeeze in. So, Samuel, thank you very much indeed for the call. Um, whilst I'm bringing him in, the point that I, you reminded me of um, was when you talked about Holocaust deniers. Uh, I don't know how many people are aware that uh, today is, uh, well, that's the 27th of January, it's the International Holocaust Remembrance Day. And it was on this day in 1945 that Auschwitz was liberated by Soviet troops. Um, the reason why I wanted to mention this earlier, and I forgot, was because normally on a um, Sunday morning, if I need to get out of bed early for whatever reason, I turn on Radio 4, and at 10 past 8 uh, on, in the morning, uh, they have the Sunday service that lasts for about, 40 minutes or something, and it comes live from a uh, church or cathedral. And today's program uh, mentioned International Holocaust Day. And the person, I don't know whether it was a priest, a bishop, or whatever, invited the congregation to preach. Um, what, how did he put it? I actually jotted it down. To preach for and remembrance of those that died at Auschwitz. Now, in remembrance, yes, but pray for... It's one of these strange things about prayer. It seems utterly redundant. I mean, what is the point of praying for people? I mean, if their belief system is correct, they're either in heaven or hell. And isn't it a little bit late to be praying for them? God sat back and allowed this to happen, but you're going to pray to the good Lord and say how wonderful he is? And ask for you know his the, the thoughts to be given to these people. I mean, it, it just seems utterly insane. Not only that, in many ways, Stalin was a nasty piece of work and killed more people than Hitler. Um, now, just because they weren't killed in mechanized death camps, does that, does that make those deaths any less valuable? Well, that's that not who, who, who's got the greatest death toll. Um, God committed global genocide, but he's he's praised for that. Right, come, now, no, come now, DPR. Yeah, it's that not a contest, you know. <laughs> it's that was a global anyway. genocide. Uh, whether, that whether, that, that yeah, was just... We gotta, we God, gotta, we hang, hang, hang on, Aaron. That wasn't global genocide. That was just God um, uh, bringing all the children's souls to him by terminating the earthly phase of life. Oh, yes. I about and, that. That's true. That, that reminds me. There's a, there's a local Texas school that is teaching that the... Uh, as part of their Bible study program, that the trail of tears was the way that God used to bring many Indians to Christ. Yeah. Do you guys know the trail of tears, Thunderfoot? Uh, That was... This place Native Americans off their land and forcing them into reservations in Oklahoma. Uh, And so they uh, relocated in Alabama and Florida and forced along this this trail with no provisions, no support, uh, just basically oh. marched along with army guys on either side. Um, I I don't have um, a I I know the general gist of 
uh, how the Indians were killed in America, I also remember saying that in terms of absolute numbers, um, the number of Indians killed was comparable uh, to the Nazi genocide. Oh no, 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 no! Much, much, much bigger. But it wasn't. Uh, it wasn't the, by the sword. It wasn't. They weren't in death camps. The the disease that ravaged the New World or North and South America. Uh, if I'm getting the numbers wrong here, I for, forgive me. But I think it went from a hundred million in the space of forty years. It went from a hundred million people living in the Americas to. 10 million people living in the Americas. That's actually 90 million people killed, the vast majority of which were killed by disease. Smallpox specifically. Yeah, um, and uh, ignoring the disease, uh, there was certainly a policy. Uh, this is in many ways uh, a thing that people need to know. And we are in our safe and stable civilization almost blind to is that you deprive someone of food and they starve to death very quickly. And the what, what they did frequently to the Indians is all you had to do was keep them on the move, and this meant that they couldn't get enough food for winter. And so the, all you had to do was sort of chase them off every now and again, and they started death in winter. That was it. That was actually the policy. I had no idea that the figure was that great concordance, but um, as I say, given the time, um, rather than dwell on this uh, topic, uh, let's take our last caller, Stefan. Hello, can you hear me? Very clearly. How are you, sir? Okay. Hi. Um, my question is, as I, as I wrote, what would convince you of anything supernatural? It has, could be God or, I don't know, homeopathy, something, anything, and my, I, I thought about it, and I can't think of anything that convince that would convince me of a su of any anything supernatural. I think there's a problem here, that, uh, Stefan, with um, the definition. Because by definition, is it not the case that we can never know anything supernatural? Sorry, say again. Is it not, by definition alone, the fact that we can never know anything supernatural? Because we can only know things about the natural world. Yeah, that that would be my point. Right. I, I can only accept natural stuff, so I can never believe in anything supernatural. Sondra, as I interrupt as, you. As something supernatural is proven, it is no longer supernatural, it is then natural. Well, um, for me, the answer is simple. Uh, predictive capability. If you've actually got a supernatural model that has great predictive capability, then you have a reason for believing that it's a reasonable description of reality. The problem is that such models don't have predictive capability. You know, I, I, can, I can absolutely believe, for example, in aliens. Uh, I, I think it's actually not unlikely that there probably are aliens out there in the universe. But I, I'm not ready to commit to that until I see the evidence. And so to say I sort of don't believe in aliens or I, quote, don't believe in ghosts or, quote, don't believe in homeopathy is to say that I have yet to be convinced that it is true. And my default position, of course, in the absence of evidence, depending on the status of the claim, is that I withhold judgment. And that's different from not believing in it. Right, like not believing in ghosts means that I've made an assertive position that I don't think ghosts 
uh, are real. I would say to you, I've never seen any evidence of ghosts, and I don't, I don't live my life in a way that ghosts are part of my daily concerns. But it's, it's not the same as saying, uh, you know, I wouldn't accept it if it were demonstrated to me. And, and let's not get bogged down with supernatural. We all know what we're talking about here, witches and uh, ghosts and UFOs and uh, the supernatural divine kind of stuff. Um, I'm I'm open to magic. I'm open to homeopathy being true. I'm open to Brzezinski's uh, cure, which is a, is a well-known uh, orphan drug. So it's, it's nothing particularly magical about it. But all of these claims, all of these things that I am, if you will, in the default skeptical position on, all that I lack is adequate evidence. And I think the best evidence, if I can, is when a skeptical person conducts the test, the results are the same as when a non-skeptical person conducts the test. So I think, uh, what do they call it, uh, observer independence is one of the most fundamental properties of good evidence. That is, no matter who does it, where they are in the world, that we can test it and get the same results. At that point, you have to start examining the models that you're using and saying, here's a phenomenon, which is an anomaly, which cannot be explained. Uh, now, that, that's not the end of the process, but that is certainly the beginning of the process. So if strong evidence can be brought forward that UFOs are visiting the Earth, it would be a real jerk who wouldn't examine that evidence, give it a fair hearing, and decide whether or not it's, it's reasonable. You can't dismiss anything completely out of hand. On the other hand, I don't endorse things until the case has been made. But, but in order for you to say that there are no extraterrestrial reptiles running our government or that you don't believe that, I mean, you just make an excuse that you haven't seen the evidence, but you would have to know all things about all things before you could know enough to say that there's no reptiles running the government. Obviously, I'm doing a, a parody of an argument that we often hear about God. Everything you said now is like you, you would only accept, for example, concordance, um, natural stuff to be that, that explains it. And I, maybe, I, maybe I, I just don't get it. I, I don't get the supernatural stuff, but don't they claim that it's something supernatural that is apart from the natural world? Yes. So, yeah, so how can we ever prove that? Stuff. I, I don't think it's a very potent argument this, because it, it boils down to semantics. When things are observable and testable in the natural world that we, we occupy, then they become natural phenomena, and we can, we can observe and test those. Now, whether or not they have a supernatural cause is a question for, I don't know, a philosopher, maybe a particle physicist, but I don't want to get bogged down in that aspect of the argument, that, you know, a supernatural phenomenon can't affect the natural world. But okay, maybe it does. I, whatever, we're open to that. Let, let's, let's see what we can measure. Let's see what we can test. Uh, and if it's testable... Uh, then, of course, it becomes part of the natural world at that point, and we say, aha, ESP, right? There's no reason why ESP can't be a natural process that somehow arises from the brain using some mechanism we don't understand. And I'm scared enough of, say, quantum physics, uh, particle physics, to shy away from things like, well, that doesn't seem very likely to me, or, you know, Newton's laws of... Uh, 
motion or, or the, the laws of thermodynamics forbid that kind of thing. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to dismiss things out of hand, but I am going to apply a greater degree of skepticism to assertions which are not consistent with models which have proven the test of time. So if you tell me you have, uh, for example, a, 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 what do they call it, eternal motion machine, uh, what's the word? Perpetual motion machine. Uh, I'm going to say you, you're going to have a lot of proving to do, Buster, because uh, that is that would involve overturning things which have been in effect and, and have never been falsified in 600 years. So you better a be a genius uh, and b have some doggone good proof. But that is something that we might call paranormal or we might call supernatural if we like. Um, just something that doesn't fit with the natural order. So uh, don't get bogged down in the semantics. Okay, thank you. Thank you very much indeed, Stefan, for the call. Uh, it's now 10 minutes after we should normally close. I've got a few thank yous to make, and then I will go through uh, um, everyone on the panel for their final words. I'd like to uh, remind people that these videos or this show will be posted on YouTube. Normally it's within about 48 hours. An audio file will also be available on iTunes. Um, I do not do that. Someone else does that for me because I'm far too incompetent uh, to be able to do that. So uh, a link to that will be included in the video descriptions and also on our webpage, www.magicsandwichshow.com, from which you can also get information and news about forthcoming events and all of the previous shows we've done. Um, I think about the last 18 months or so shows are also on there. Uh, I'd like to thank Ben, who's been working behind the scenes today instead of Tony. Uh, thank you very much, Ben, for your help. Um, remind people, firstly, that Thunder is looking for a name for his video competition. Um, I'll leave him to uh, explain um, a little bit more about that and where you can send your ideas for that. Um, finally, uh, at the beginning of the show, if you were not here, I mentioned the free Ben Baz um, campaign that is going uh, on. Ben Baz is someone who has been arrested in uh, Q8 uh, and is facing trial uh, in Q8 on charges of uh, blasphemy. Again, links to that will be included in the video description. And if you are listening to this subsequently on iTunes, if you go to our webpage, um, then that information will be there as well. Um, finally, uh, uh, Seth Andrews book which is currently linked above the uh, or linked to it is above the uh, comment section on blog TV um, check that out and again a link to that will be included both on the uh, YouTube descriptions and also on our uh, webpage, that's me done thank you everyone for coming along, final words should we take it alphabetically alright all right, thanks. I, earlier in this show, there was somebody that was texting messages to me wanting to, uh, you know, I guess effectively waste my time debating me on Skype. Uh, he was saying that uh, that it was that we just gang up on Christians that come here. Well, there's four of us. We all have questions. We're all eager to respond. I told him that I would easily, you know, happily one on one with him if he wanted, because we've done that before, and uh, people don't don't take that bait to do a recorded call. I like people to be accountable. So, of course, that person, if I'm going to be have my face on the camera and you know my identity, I'm going to be talking to a real person who, when I prove them wrong, will have to admit that, yes, they are wrong. The only way that you can have that kind of accountability is when you have an identity, and so this person currently calling himself Broski1990, is telling me that my logic is fouled because he wants to have a debate with me wherein he remains completely anonymous and can say whatever he wants. 
and doesn't have to be held accountable for anything I prove him wrong about. Uh, he told me that I'm using a cop-out. I just wanted to throw that out there to see if anybody would waste their time doing a public debate against somebody who won't even admit who he is. I, I think that he's obviously the one doing the, the cop-out. Anyway, uh, last words. Sorry, I had to. I had that steaming on me for a little while. I am going to be at the North Texas Secular Convention uh, at the University of Texas on the 8th and 10th of February. Uh, this is going to be a good convention. Of, of Mr. Deity's going to be there, a whole bunch of other people. And um, that's uh, that's all I'm going to plug at the moment, and I'm done. If my uh, recollection of the alphabet is correct, concordance next. Okay, so I've already announced a discussion with PZ and the Skeptical Heretic and moderated by the True Puka. Uh, I think that'll be interesting. It will be a discussion. Don't don't come if you're expecting, um, well, don't come if you're expecting me to try to, you know, gut slam somebody uh, in the discussion. I, I think it's just, it's something that we need to kind of have out, discuss, open up the issues and have a conversation about it. On that line, I also am going to be doing a video... to remind us of the date and venue again. I'm sorry, that is February 2nd, which I believe is next mm. Saturday. Uh, the True Puka channel has uh, some more details. We're still kind of working out the final bits. And again, we're not 100% sure PZ is going to show. Um, we'll see. Well, uh, But we'll I mean, probably I, still I, have I, a discussion. I would just anyway. have on this, we discussed earlier the problems with dogmatic positions, but just yeah. asserting that you're right and cutting off yourself from all other lines of uh, criticism. Hmm. Well, we'll have a discussion. Uh, and then the other thing, I, I, I'm going to be probably working on a video that I didn't really want to make, and that's about gun control. Uh, and I know that discussion has happened here as well, but... I won't bill myself as a completely neutral party, but I, I will say that I, I can understand some points on both sides. Uh, but there are some arguments, I think, that just have to be thrown out, and that'll probably be the first video. There'll be a second volume that will talk about what issues I do think need to be discussed, and I think it's an important time in our history where we have a chance, at least in the U.S., to discuss these things uh, and see what comes out of them. Well, I, I think um, whether you like it or not, these issues are going to be discussed, given what uh, Obama yep. has said uh, publicly recently. But anyway, um, let's leave that for now. Thunderfoot. Uh, yes, I'd just like to announce that there's going to be a video contest, which hopefully I'm going to announce in video form at the end of this week. Uh, the first round will run for the next three months, or actually two months now, because I'm a flight getting the video out. Um, <coughs> The judge will be Eugene. The first prize will be a thousand dollars. Second prize five hundred. There will be two prizes of two hundred and fifty dollars. The third prize of two hundred and fifty dollars. So if you think that you can make good videos on YouTube, um, we want you for this competition. Plus, you get to get your video watched by Eugenie Scott. So. So you're on that bombshell. Well, one final thing. Uh, we will be back with you in two weeks' time at the same time. As I say, if you want details of the show, do remember uh, they're all contained on our uh, website, um, links to which will be in the description. And if our first caller um, is true to her word, she will be back with us in two weeks' time. She was a Daniela who had once been an atheist who had converted to Christianity um, on evidence that she didn't feel comfortable telling us about during the course of this show 
but which she said she may well be able to be in a position to tell us about on the next show. So that will be something worth looking forward to. As soon as she figures out what it is. Yes. Well, she's got two weeks to to do that. Anyway, on that note, thank you very much, everyone, indeed, that's come along. Thank you for all the callers. And um, apart from one or two people that are in the chat, thank you, everyone, who was uh, contributing to the conversation in the chat. Take care. We'll see you in two weeks' time.